All right, open your Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read uh, a Christmas story. Y'all, the Christmas trees are still up. Decorations are still up. I don't know what's going on at your house, but here at the transit, it's still Christmas. So we're going to read uh, a short Christmas passage together and see what we would have for this Sunday after Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, going all the way through verse 12. We're going to read these together out loud, and of course you can read on the screen if you'd like to. You guys ready? Let's read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We thank you uh, that we are able to read it freely and openly in this country that we live in. I thank you for the gathering of your church today. We, uh, we are on the down of a new year, and we gather, Lord, as your church um, to, uh, to do what you called us to do as the church, not forsake the gathering of, your, of ourselves together, but to do it all the more as we see the days approaching. But more than that, Lord God, we come to hear a word from you. Would you speak to us through your word today, through this, this Christmas story, even after Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas, would you speak to us and, uh, and give us um, the, the wherewithal to go into your, your uh, a new year uh, encouraged, challenged, uh, ready to go and receive all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Most of you don't come to church the Sunday after Christmas wanting to hear a Christmas story. Um, possibly most of you have moved on. Like, you know, so you've opened the gifts. You might be wearing one of them. Some of you probably went to the mall and returned a gift for something that you thought was better the day after Christmas or possibly Saturday. You, the, the feast has been eaten. The leftovers are already gone. Uh, there's nothing left of Christmas. If you had Christmas decorations up, maybe a few of you have already taken your Christmas decorations down. Christmas is over. Um, by our calendar, yes, by calendar, 
Christmas is over. But I think uh, most of us recognize that Christmas, although it's a one day event, it's the day that we celebrate the incarnation of God into the, the baby Jesus. God come to be with us, Emmanuel. It's a one day event, but Christmas is indeed a season. Uh, the early Western church tradition observed Christmas beginning on December 25th, and it stretched, extending until January 5th. In other words, the 12 days of Christmas. You guys remember the song on the first? I mean, we spent the whole Christmas um, leading up to that, uh, singing the 12 days of Christmas. But actually, in the liturgical calendar, the first day of Christmas is December 25th. So today would be the fourth day of Christmas. On the fourth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Four calling. Come on, guys. He gave four calling birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I just jumped that in on you without giving you a warning. Um, and so they would celebrate the, the, the early tradition was they celebrate the 12 days of Christmas ending, giving gifts and celebrating with feasts. All the things that we do on the 25th, they did it on the 5th of January. And January 6th in the, in the liturgical church calendar would be the day of Epiphany. It would be the day that they recognize or celebrate the coming of the Magi, the, the wise men that we read in Matthew chapter two. And so by the liturgical calendar, we got a whole nother week and a couple of days left of Christmas. And so I don't mean to prolong Christmas for those of you that have like packaged it all up, set it aside, and you're ready to jump into the new year. I, I, I'm, I'm ready to jump into the new year as well. But today we're going to talk about another aspect of Christmas. That is the, the story of the wise men. And we, I'm not... I'm not trying to, to make you focus on Christmas per se, but the story of the wise men seeing a star in the midst of the night of where they were and then following that, that star to a, a distant land, coming to find a baby who had been born king of the Jews, tells us something very significant, not about Christmas, but about the message of the Bible. And it's a message of worship. What we're going to find out through the story of the wise men is, is what it means to learn, to, what it means to give our worship to Jesus. You know, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we forget that these are stories of real people in real situations of life. And the interesting things about the, the stories that we read in the Bible is that they fit these, all these small stories that we read, especially like this story of, the, of Christmas, of the wise men. Um, fits into the larger story, the story of God. And in this version of the Christmas story, in Matthew's version, uh, we have a lot of things that have gone on behind the scenes. If we had backed up and started in chapter one, we would have seen an angelic visitation of Joseph that said, hey, your fiance is going to be impregnated by God. Don't dismiss her. Actually go through, take care of her, marry her. Something good is going to come of it. In chapter two, we see a star moving in supernatural ways. Later on in the story, uh, a virgin gives birth. And then through the, the, the ruler Herod, we see suspicion. We see a dramatic es escape of, of Joseph and Mary from where they were living in Bethlehem out into the greater Egypt. We see the murder of kids under two years old. We, we see a whole bunch of other things that really catch us by surprise in this Christmas story. And what the gospel writer Matthew is trying to do is give us three characters who not only point to the one of the central messages 
of, of the Christmas story, but also highlight an important theme in all the Bible. And that's the theme of, of worship. And so the three characters that, that Matthew introduces us to in this version of the Christmas story are firstly the wise men. Here's what we read about the wise men, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse one, 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You know, a lot of legend and uncertainty surrounds these, these wise men. Uh, we have no idea what their names were. By tradition, we say that there were three of them because they, uh, we, uh, at the end, uh, I think verse 11, uh, the wise men bring Jesus three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the biblical record doesn't say they were three wise men. In fact, historically, the thought is there might have been like nine or 12 or maybe even more of them. More so, they may have been accompanied by a cohort of, of, of chariots and armed, armed guards to bring whatever they had, their treasures, to this distant place where they were going to go. So there, there may have been only three wise men. There may not have been. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. You know, we sing this song, We Three Kings, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Remember singing that song uh, sometimes during Christmas? Uh, we don't actually even know if these wise men were, were kings. They were kingly, but we don't know if they were kings. So that song might be wrong. Uh, the Greek word translated wise men is the Greek word uh, magos. Uh, it means it, it's where we get our word magician. And so uh, a more appropriate term that would define the wise men is uh, astronomer. They were people who looked up at the stars and, you know, sort of figured out what was going on in the world all above us. Historically, they would have been, uh, they wouldn't have been vagabonds just traveling around with nothing to do and nothing, no wealth to them. They would have been respected people in their communities. Uh, they would have been respected in terms of their knowledge of the arts, of astrology, what they could do with medicine for the dreams that they received and the ability to interpret dreams. These were pretty significant people. Um, they, they weren't just ordinary people. Um, they likely hailed from an area in the lower Mesopotamian basin, which means they came from an area around southern, southern Iraq. Um, the thought is they were either from Babylonian, Persian, or maybe even Midian descent. Um, another misunderstanding that we have about these wise men is we think that they came and when they were giving baby Jesus these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that they got there immediately. But the thing is, if they were coming from Babylon, Persia, or, or Media, they, they were traveling on foot or by, by camel or donkey over 1,200 miles. And of course, there's a lot the Bible doesn't tell us. We, we, we can speculate a whole bunch, but we don't know exactly um, when they got there, how they got there. But verse 11 or verse 10 or 11 tells us that they came and greeted Jesus in his house. Okay, and the word used for child in, uh, in verse 11 or verse, verse 10, verse 11, uh, is, uh, is a word that suggests Jesus wasn't a baby. He was at least a year old, possibly upwards of 18 months old. All right, so a lot of misconceptions about um, the wise men. There's a lot we don't know, but, um, but um, hopefully that helps you out clarify a few things. That's the first character or characters. The second character is Herod. We read about Herod. Uh, throughout the, the New Testament. You can't really talk about Jesus 
without talking about Herod. He, is, he and his sons were uh, the, the reigning powers uh, over much of Jewish uh, Israelite territory during Jesus' lifetime. This is what verse 3 says about Herod, verse 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Uh, and this is the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Israel, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod was the, this is Herod the Great, and he was the political leader of Judea. Um, he's technically a governor, but, but Herod would have been a king-like figure. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a puppet king of the Romans. The Romans uh, had, were occupiers of all of Israelite territory during this time frame in the, the first century. When you think of Herod, you got to think of all the worst dictators in the histories of our world that you've known about. I mean, Hitler, uh, Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il. I mean, he was one of those who was, was harsh. He was oppressive. He was a paranoid leader. I mean, he was a mess of a leader. Uh, the first character that Matthew introduces us to are the wise men. The second character is Herod himself. And the third character is, uh, unsuspectingly, it's, it's the star. I mean, the star is possibly inanimate. It's a, it's a moving star, uh, but it's a very important character in this Christmas story. And here's what the star represents. It represents the light of God. The star represents the, uh, God revealing to us who he is, his guidance and his presence. So the star is important. So these, these three characters point us to one of the major themes in all the scriptures, and that's the theme of worship. One of my uh, favorite authors uh, is a, a former pastor, Presbyterian pastor, and now he's a conference speaker all over the world uh, by the name of Paul Tripp. And Paul Tripp says that when we talk about worship, uh, here's what typically comes to mind. We think of what we're doing today, gathering here on a Sunday morning. We're going to break out our hymn books or the musicians are going to crank themselves up. We may get dressed up in our best clothes. We're going to sing some songs, give some money, uh, take notes during a sermon. Um, but that's really not all that, that worship is. Worship is uh, far more beyond that. Worship, according to the scriptures, is an ongoing captivation of the heart that overflows into your life to produce desires, word, and deed. That's what Paul Tripp says. I'm going to say that again. Worship, according to scripture, is an ongoing captivation of our heart that overflows into our lives to produce desires, all kind of desires, word, and, and deed. And, and this is this is the thing about worship. We all worship. Worship is our identity before it's our activity. Very simply, we are always, all the time, worshiping. Even when you don't think you're worshiping, you're worshiping. The question is never, who am I, you know, am I worshiping? It is that you are worshiping. So what or who are you worshiping? We'll see in this passage that human beings worship. Worship is not a religious 
experience. It's, it's a human reality. In fact, in this passage, what we see of Herod is that he's worshiping. Herod uh, actually feigned worship towards Jesus. And so uh, we don't know if the wise men, when they came to, to Bethlehem, they came to, the, they came to the palace expecting to find a baby crowned, uh, crowned king, king of the Jews. And we don't know if they actually spoke directly to Herod or one of his political leaders. But when Herod gets word that, that three wise men from our far country are there, he, he beckoned them, tell me why you've come. And he, he summoned all the, the, the scribes and the chief priests and he said, find out where this, this king of the Jews is supposed to be born. And then he had the wise men to, to go seek him out and then say, tell me where he, when you find him, tell me where he is so that I too may go and worship him. But in, in reality, Herod did not want to go worship Jesus because we, a few verses later in verse 16, Herod actually kills all the newborn uh, baby boys that are two years and under. Herod did, had no intention of worshiping Jesus. Actually, he wanted to kill Jesus. Herod was actually worshiping himself. The wise men, as well, were worshipers. They were pagan astronomers. And so they, they worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars. They had no idea of who the true God was, but they, they were worshipers. What happened to them is God captured their attention by a star. They responded to the light, in other words, they responded to the revelation that God gave them. They followed that revelation, and God brought them to a place where they came to worship. They came to worship Jesus. I guess, in a, in a sense, we could say that star is worshiping, too. The psalmist says that all creation uh, declares the glory of God. And so both animate and inanimate objects in our world are all, cre- are, are all worshiping their creator in some sense. And so the Bible, in a sense, is the history of our age-old struggle. And what's that age-old struggle? It's the object of, of our worship. We're always worshiping. The Bible teaches us that all of us have something that our affections are given to. All of us are motivated by something. We have an object of our worship. Romans 1 says that we are either going to worship the creator as God or we'll worship creation as God. That means you'll worship another person for how they look or what they do for you or how they make you feel, or you may worship your money or your house or your kids, or you're going to worship the one true God. The question is never, do I worship? The question always is, what do I worship? Now, that, and it's hard. It's, I would tell you, it's hard to discern what you're worshiping unless you do a little bit of introspection. Now, most of y'all are on vacation, right? Y'all still on vacation probably until after the new year. So no one wants to come to, 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 to worship at church um, the, the Sunday after Christmas and have to think too hard. And so I'm not, not going to make you think too hard, but I am going to ask you some questions. All right. There won't be a test afterwards, but these are questions worth your time at some point as you begin the new year. Uh, and I want you to ponder on a few things probing questions that ask you uh, about the object of your worship. Here's the first one. What do you want more than anything? What do you believe will make you really, really, really happy? What do you go for emotional comfort or release? By that means, I mean, what's your release valve? I mean, if you're going to exhale, 
What, what is that that makes you, that makes you exhale? Where do you gain your significance? Where do you feel important? What makes you feel important? And lastly, uh, how do you define your identity? All of these questions boil down to, to, to one thing. And this is what worship gets at. What is at the center of your life? If we would look at the, the text again, uh, Herod's object was himself. Herod is the picture of a false worship and self-motive. If we would press into Herod's life, he was one of the most paranoid leaders in, in all the history of, of leaders that, you know, that we could look at. Um, he had two of his sons executed because he thought they were trying to dethrone him. He killed one of his, his wives and uh, a, a recently born son because he thought they were trying to usurp his Authority. Of course, the, the text tells us in verse 16 of chapter 2 that Herod had thousands of little babies under two years old killed because he thought that there was a, a child that had been born in this narrative that would one day come and be crowned king over him. Herod was the object of his own worship, and he is a picture of false worship and self-motives. I guess juxtaposed Against the, the wise men is the, the picture. I mean, the Herod is the picture of the wise men. And uh, the neat thing is that the wise men worshiped baby Jesus. Now, some of you um, may be opposed to that and you may ask the question, I mean, isn't it kind of strange that or, or weird that people would worship a baby? If those of you who are parents here in the room uh, undoubtedly have, have had this question come from one of your kids. You know, they're trying to put together, I mean, who's most important? Is it Santa Claus or is it Jesus? And of course, as Christians, we're trying to, you know, we're not dismissing the traditions that we have in our culture, um, uh, but we're, all, we're also trying to infuse in our kids a biblical perspective of, of who God is and, and what the Christmas story really is all about. And, you know, leave it to a kid. They'll come and they'll ask you, so why are we worshiping a baby? Um, let me ask you this. I mean, this is a way of maybe, maybe bringing clarity to this. Uh, which is worse? Uh, which would be worse? Uh, worshiping uh, your job, worshiping a hobby, worshiping a person, worshiping your money, worshiping sex, or worshiping a baby? Here's the, here's the thing that the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that when we come and we worship Jesus like these wise men, we aren't just worshiping a baby. This is a particular baby. This is a peculiar baby. Uh, the Bible tells us that this baby was God in the flesh. John chapter one, verse 14. More than anything, the Bible story of Christmas tells us something not just about a baby, not just about Jesus himself that's come as a baby. It tells us about God. That's what the Christmas story is trying to convey to us. And that really is what Matthew is doing in his rendition of of Jesus and and the, the story of Christmas. And it tells us that God doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come with an army. He doesn't come with exuberance. He comes meek and humble. He comes with, uh, with a desire to even be among farm animals. He comes in a, a very meek way. He hangs out with, with the simple. He firstly appears to, to humble, lowly shepherds. This God who's great, this God who is awesome, who's really, really, really big, comes in the form of a child, and he comes really, really, really small. 
God condescends into our world. And unlike some people think, God doesn't come and just spin the world around, say hello to all of his creation, and then backs away. No, God comes, and if, as it were, he, he moves into our neighborhood. He becomes one of us. And this is why God becomes one of us. He becomes one of us, he becomes one of us to win our worship. Have you ever thought about that? God becomes like us to win our worship. He comes to cause us to see who it is that deserves our worship. He shows us what should be the object of our worship. And that's what the text is pointing to. The text gives us a clue as to who deserves our worship and who should be the object of our worship. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Um, this is this is Matthew's um, Matthew's way of exaggerating. He's giving us a quadruple uh, a quadruple word kind of uh, experience of of showing the joy, the natural joy that these shepherds had when the star reappeared that would lead them to the, the this this baby who would be born king of the Jews. He's he's saying, you know, they didn't just have a little bit of joy. They didn't just have great joy. They had exceedingly great joy. I mean, they they were joyous. I, I mean, I guess if I were just jumping up and down and uh, as if I had won a million dollars. That's the kind of joy that they were experiencing. Um, he's trying to show us emphasis uh, in regards to that. Uh, Matthew's trying to show us what, what worship looks like. And I think if you put this into, uh, into just practicality, I think he's saying that if, if, if how you worship, you consider it boring, if, if how you worship, you're disconnected, if your emotions are disconnected, if it's rote, if it's mundane, then, then you're probably not worshiping the way that we see these wise men worshiping here in this text. And this doesn't mean that we're supposed to be, um, that worship is supposed to be a circus, that we, you know, we'd be hanging off the chandeliers, everybody speaking in tongues, and just life, is, uh, life in worship would be crazy. But I think he's telling us that there should be joy, and the wise men had joy. Verse 11, and, getting, uh, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, we're told here about worship. Uh, and we're told by worship in the sense of uh, the gifts that the, the wise man brought to Jesus. You know, firstly, we got to recognize they fell down and they worshiped him. And so Matthew is conveying to us that uh, worship is, is firstly an attitude. It's, it's how you approach God. That, that's part of your worship. But worship also could possibly be a position. When you, when you bow down or kneel or lie uh, frost, uh, fr- prostrate um, in front of someone, when, when you're falling down to the ground, what you're doing is uh, you're saying that someone else is greater. You're saying you're high, I'm low, I'll, I'll condescend to give you reverence. And that's what the, the wise men are doing. They fell down and they worship Jesus. It's, it, they're saying you have great dignity and by comparison, I, I'm as low as I possibly could be. The part that I think is, is telling here is, I mean, you got to remember these wise men, they're pagans. 
They don't know God at, at all. At least, I mean, they don't know God in the sense of the true God. They are astrologers, and they think that uh, there's something in the world around them that they see, the objects they see around them are the things that are, are worth worshiping. They have no idea of who the one true God is. And then what God does, very uniquely, is he shows them a star. He shows them the very thing that attracts them, that, that interests them. He comes into their world. In other words, he comes into their worldview to, to reveal who he is to people that doesn't know him. And that's a neat thing. They were into astrology, so God shows up with, the, with a star. And this is what the wise men did right here in this text. They responded to the light. The light of the star. They responded, in other words, to the revelation that God gave them of himself. And so if I were to give you steps in terms of, I mean, how do we give our worship to Jesus? This this would be step one. Step one is simply responding to the light that God has given you. What do I mean by light? I mean, God reveals himself to us in in various ways. And so would you pause and, and think about all the ways that God exposes himself that God shows you a light in regards to who he is. How is God working in your life? What is he showing you? Do you feel that he's invited you into something that's bigger than you, bigger than your life? And I would tell you, in a sense, you know, this is God's invitation. This is not only his invitation, inviting you into the worship of himself, but it's God pursuing you. And and you should respond to that. So step one would be, uh, paying attention to the light, the way God has revealed himself to you. Step two would simply be, um, I mean, what, what did the wise men do when they came to Jesus? What did he do? What did they do? Verse 11. They gave him gifts. All right? They gave him, they gave him three gifts. Verse 11 says they opened up their, their treasure, their, their bag of treasure, which says to me they, had a whole, they brought a whole bunch of treasure, not knowing, what they, were, not knowing what, uh, what they would happen upon. They were probably wealthy people. And they took out what, they, what would have been the best gifts when they came with joy and, and laid eyes on the one that the star was leading them to. And, you know, there's a lot of symbolism um, in these gifts that they brought. Uh, these gifts are actually prophetic. They were prophetic in a sense. The Old Testament um, frequently links gold as a gift that you would give to king. And so they gave Jesus, baby Jesus, gold. Frankincense was used by priests as they performed services in the temple. Specifically, frankincense was uh, a, a spice, uh, an, an herb that was used uh, in the most holy place, ministering to God with it. Myrrh, the last uh, gift that they gave him, was one of the most valuable gum resins. And besides being used as a spice or for medicine, it was particularly used to embalm the dead. John chapter 19 says that when Joseph of Arimathea um, received Jesus, his corpse, they took him, they anointed him with with spices and herbs. Among those was uh, this spice, myrrh. And so here's what these gifts represent. The first gift recognized that Jesus was a human king. The second gift was an act of worship, recognizing that this young child was divine, that he actually was Emmanuel, God with us. And the third gift recognized that baby, that this baby Jesus, born to be king, was also born to die. 
And so the Magi opened up their gift of treasures and they gave Jesus, I mean, they gave him the best gifts that they had. We don't know what else they had, but they gave him the best that they had. And here's how this relates to us. What do you think the best that you have is? If you had a bunch of gifts, like anything, I mean, think about all the things that you have. Your car, your house, your clothes, your wealth. And if you were like the wise men approaching the, the, the king of the universe and you were going to bestow gifts on him, what gift would you bring? Like the little drone boy, I, you know, I have no gift to bring. What gift would you bring? I would tell you that the best gift that you have is actually yourself. True worship says that we give God the best that we have, and the best that you have is yourself. And so worship is responding to God's invitation. Worship is giving God our best, which is always yourself. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or perhaps you're in this room today and you're far from God uh, in every sense, uh, the, the, the worship issue is always the same for all of us. Who has control of your life? Who receives your passion? Who gets, I mean, who gets your your best? Who do you worship? And I, you know, I think about that and I'm challenged because I know oftentimes because of selfishness, um, I don't always give God my best. Think about it. Think about it this way. Um, The people that are closest to us, oftentimes we don't give them our best and your best is always you. We We hold back our time. We hold back our love. We hold back the ways that we could give, that we could be present with the people in our lives. And that, I mean, I'm challenged by that all the time. And what, the, what we're learning from the wise men is that the best thing that you can give to anybody, especially God, is yourself. The best worship that you can give to Jesus, not just at Christmas time, but for the rest of your life, every day that you wake up, is to give him you. Church Father Augustine said this. He says, our loves have been distorted, this disordered. And what he meant by that is, you know, we can worship and be distracted from the one true God. We can worship and not even know uh, what we're worshiping or why. I think that was Herod's issue. That was the wise men's issue before they met Jesus. They were worshiping things that weren't worthy of worship. And the reason why the Bible um, tells us is that we can worship and our worship be distorted is because of the, the age-old problem with the world, and that's the problem of sin. When we look at the, the book of Genesis, the, the book of Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve um, charted their own course. They decided to be their own God. They decided that they would not worship God, rather they'd worship themselves. And ever since, um, our world and the worship that God deserves in our world has been distorted. And so we read about distorted worship every day in the news. We hear about it on TV. We see it played out in front of us in the lives of our family, of our friends, of people at work. We see it all around us. Worship that's distorted because of sin. And really, that's why God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to do what we could not do. Jesus died the death that we deserve. He lived a life that we couldn't live, died as if that we deserve to die because of our sin. And the good news, not just of Christmas, but of every day that you wake up, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. And he has overcome your enemy, sin, death, hell, and the grave. 
And that's what Christianity is all about. I mean, that's the true story of the Bible. That's why we give our worship to Jesus, because Jesus deserves our worship. And so, um, I know, did this feel like a Christmas message? Kind of. It's still Christmas. This is the fourth day of Christmas. Y'all know that. But what I want to encourage you um, is before you push Christmas aside and and, and jump into your new year, even if you've already done that, this is our opportunity as we close out 2014 and head into a new year. And the opportunity is this, to get to know the God of the universe and to worship him. And we do that responding to the light, responding to the revelation that God is giving you of himself. Well, I mean, how is God revealing himself to you? What is he saying to you? And then like the, like the three, like I'm saying three wise men, like the wise men, I don't know how many they were. We give him our best, and your best is always you. Give Jesus yourself. Let's pray. Father, you are great, holy. We love you. We adore you, and we thank you for opportunities to worship. And we close out our last Christmas, uh, last gathering of the year as a church, looking forward to uh, to a new year, but not without thanking you for all that you've done uh, in, uh, in this assembly, uh, in our community, in our world, in our individual lives in 2014. Lord, uh, we confess that oftentimes our worship has uh, been distorted. We are people that get distracted from what should be the object of our worship. We do that because of the sin in our life. We do that because of the sin in our world, and we pray that you forgive us. Lord, help us to follow the light that you provide, to see the light that's given to us, like the wise men following that supernatural star that appeared and was so mesmerizing to them that they would travel over 1,200 miles to come to a land far away from them and worship, look for and then worship the one who's born king of the Jews. And the neat thing for us is uh, the king of the Jews is, is still here, but he is no longer simply the king of the Jews because as Matthew's gospel unfolds for us, Jesus has come for the nations. He's come for people like us, Gentiles and Jews alike. And so Lord, today, as we conclude this year and jump into 2015, uh, as a people, we choose to, uh, to follow your light, to follow the star. And Lord God, we give you gifts. We give you worship. We adore you. But mostly, simply, we just give you ourself. Lord, we commit, even as we are about to take communion today for the last time in 2014, we commit that our gift to you in this coming year would be ourselves wholeheartedly, unashamedly. Would you receive us? We pray this in your great name. And everyone said amen and amen.